Thank you, friends. It is good to be with you. This is, uh, I guess, my ninth year back here at Paznaz uh, with my wife, Suzanne, and, and uh, our boys who are no longer here, but to Evan and Keaton, and probably about um, three and a half years, maybe, that I've been an official part-time pastor. It's been a privilege, an honor, and a joy. It's wonderful to go into a new year with you. I was just thinking again, on the Sundays I preach, I just can't wait to get up here. The worst part is waiting. I love the music. I love to sing Allie with you. You know, I hoop and holler occasionally, but I need to get up here. I wish that I could preach first and then you could do your thing because then I would hoop and holler more and I'd get all this nervous energy out of me. But it's wonderful to be with you and I always look forward to these moments uh, with honestly fear and trembling. And I do appreciate Joe praying for me this morning. And I hope we'll always pray for whoever is up behind this pulpit um, in preaching. And I invite you even to pray this morning. But I pray, I, I pray for you that you will pray that you will have uh, ears to hear and eyes to see this morning as we look at God's word together. I invite you to turn in the scriptures this morning to the Epiphany passage for this year, which is actually from John's Gospel. And I'm going to be reading this uh, from John chapter 1, uh, 9 through 14. And I'm going to be reading this morning from the Common English Bible. So I invite you to hear, to read on the screen the word of the Lord. The true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. The light was in the world. And the world came into being through the light. But the world didn't recognize the light. The light came to his own people, and his own people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children, born not from blood nor from human desire or passion, but born from God. The Word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory. Glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this is Epiphany Sunday. <clears throat> As Pastor Ali said, it's at Epiphany that historically we remember the Magi, the wise sages who followed the star to see the Christ child. I mean, it's really such a great story if you sort of break it down, if you, if you look at it carefully. It's filled with interesting meaning and implications. You have these sages, these wise persons. We don't know their gender. We don't know how many of them there were. We don't know their names, despite what you've heard. We don't know if they were kings exactly or what they were. But we know that there's some kind of scholars, scholars or readers of the signs, and they're not Israelites, they're not Yahweh servants, but by watching the signs, by looking for the light, they figure out that something terribly important is about to happen, the birth of the king of the Jews, and so they come to pay honor. Wow. Just think about that for a minute. Slow down when you're reading scripture. Let it sink in. What can it mean that people from other faiths find Jesus and honor him? What was Matthew, the writer, the only writer who tells this story, by the way, what was Matthew trying to say to the listener, the hearer, the reader in this story? Then, of course, there's the whole cool issue of the star. 
But the wise sages, they don't just see the star, they, they follow the star. And I'd like to pause and ask you how many of you have heard an epiphany sermon where the pastor says, and what star are you following? I'm not going to do that to you today. Too corny. Or what about the part in the story where Herod hears about this situation and it says he becomes troubled? Again, if you're reading slowly and carefully, you'll also notice this. It says that all of Jerusalem became troubled with him. I just love the little throwaways like that, don't you? You could ponder for weeks what that's all about. Well, Herod's troubled, so he wants to kill Jesus. But the sages, again, the wise persons, they're warned in a dream. We don't know by whom. Again, the text doesn't exactly say we expect it must be the, the heavenly uh, angels of some kind. They're warned to go home another way, not to tell Herod where the Christ child lies. Now, again, I could talk all day long about how maybe you and I are also called to forsake the principalities and the powers of our day to go home that is to Jesus, by another route. But I'm not going to do that to you either. What I want to talk about today is light. Do you notice how in verse 9 and 10, they didn't recognize the light? Hear it again. The true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. The light was in the world, and the world came into being through the light, but the world didn't recognize the light. Again, in verse 11, the light came down to his own people, and his own people didn't welcome him. Well, that's not great. But those who did welcome him, here verse 12 and following, but those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children. Born not from blood, not from human desire or passion, but born from God, the word became flesh and made his home among us. We have seen his glory, glory like that of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Those who recognized, those who welcomed become God's children. They see the glory of God. Oh, the, my friends, the stakes are pretty high when it comes to seeing the light. Seems to me that if we see the light, we too can be like those wise sages on Epiphany. If not, we're the opposite of wise. We risk not only being not children of God, we risk missing the glory. Again, high stakes. High stakes indeed. I've come to think that one can be a believer in Jesus and somehow still miss the light. I've come to believe, I've come to Suspect, I've come to notice that one can be a believer in Jesus and still miss the light. Remember, John here is giving us this beautiful poem is what this is. Remember, Scripture is full of different genres, right? There's apocalyptic literature, there's, there's gospels, there's letters, there's proverbs, there's songs, and there's poetry. And John is giving us a beautiful poem here. And so we can take a little uh, poetic license with the passage. Receiving the light, welcoming it, recognizing it. It's not just about believing in it, at least not like how you and I in the 21st century use the word believe. 
I mean, Jesus was literally in front of people, wasn't he? They saw him. They believed in him. Even the disciples believed. But somehow they always didn't necessarily get the whole light thing. So let's be poetic a little bit ourselves. Let's be poetic with the concept of light for a moment. What can light mean? What can light do? Well, light chases away darkness. Light exposes pain. Light exposes suffering and tragedy and any other kind of situation that has been covered in darkness, ignored, forgotten, pushed away. Light spreads. Light can warm. And light can heal. The light is not just a thing or a person to intellectually believe in. The light is a force. It's a movement. The light is spirit, if you will, that's moving and alive and at work, exposing, awakening, healing, warming, illuminating. Light brings life. Come on now. So now, let me ask you, not do you believe in Jesus? But let me ask you, do you see the light? Now, some of us in certain branches of Christianity, I'm afraid, have not been so much light seekers as we have been what I like to call dark avengers. And we have a picture here of what I like to think of when I think of dark avengers. Can we put that picture up here for a second? You know this picture. It's the iconic American Gothic picture. I would like to introduce you to Ned and Na Nancy Nazarene. There they are, friends. Don't they look full of joy and excitement and happiness and light? Don't you want to go to the parties where they're at? Don't you want to join their club? Don't you look to them when you're in trouble and need? Well, maybe not. You see, we've been people who look around for darkness. In some of our Christian traditions, we've become what I like to call don't do it people. <laughs> we've been trained to focus on the dangerous, the sinful, what is wrong, what to avoid, whom to avoid, who to stay away from, what to condemn and what to flee from. And we become what Dallas Willard refers to as sin managers. And ironically, we become so focused on the darkness that we lose sight of the light. We don't recognize it. And we don't welcome it. We don't know how to nurture light. We don't even know how to blow on the embers to bring light more and more into being. Because we're so focused on avoiding the darkness, we certainly know what we're against, but I'm not sure we always know what we're for, let alone do anything to bring those things that we claim we're for into being. As sin managers or dark avengers, we don't know how to talk about a Christian life of thriving and flourishing, let alone joy and pleasure. We miss the light even when it's right in front of us. 
And we're not like the wise sages. We don't recognize the light in unexpected places, working with unexpected people. And sadly, we don't welcome the light. And dear friends, I'm afraid that much of the world outside of the church sees us that way. As dark avengers, as sin managers, we're not light bringers. We don't bring the good news of the light. We bring the bad news that everything is falling apart and it's probably your fault. May God have mercy on us. But <laughs> as we have just come out of Advent, we are reminded, aren't we, that the light has come. And our job, our job is to recognize it, is to notice it, is to welcome it. And it's not as easy as it sounds if you've been trained to be a dark avenger. Always on the lookout for darkness. Always the ER in the room, Winnie the Pooh reference. Always the Debbie Downer, Saturday Night Live reference. Always the bringer of fire in brimstone, Jonathan Edwards reference. My pastoral challenge to you for this new year is that you will become a light seeker. <laughs> kind of chokes me up to think about it. I challenge you to get involved in practices that will aid you in seeing the light. It might be trying to notice more acts of kindness than documenting acts of ill will. That might mean, friends, that you need to start directing your attention in this new year to some new areas than you have been directing your attention to last year. They're going to have to make some choices. Could you look for the good? Could you find the kindness in your heart and in others? Could you give the benefit of the doubt to the other Could you find the light in a flower? <laughs> the laugh of a child, the touch of a hand, the sound of someone's voice, the breath in your lungs, in the blessings and privileges that you have. Hold on a sec, let's get more personal. Could you find the light in a Zoom call? <sighs> I'm so sick of Zoom. Could you find the light in socially distancing with masks on? <laughs> There's light there if you look for it. Could you find it working from home? Or how about trying to teach your children from home? I know you're throwing things at the screen now, parents. I'm sorry. But there's light there. I've heard some of you talk about it. Now, I'm not suggesting that we deny the hard parts of life. I am not saying that we become people of the power of positive thinking. Ugh, that makes my skin crawl. What I'm saying is that it's easy to find darkness. That takes no skill at all. But could we become disciplined to seek, recognize, and welcome the light? And when we see it, just like the wise sages, probably in unexpected places, can we recognize it? And could we say, hey, there's God at work. Well, well, what do you know? Look, there's God at work. Hey, there's some light over there. 
I can't believe God is at work over there. It's going to take some discipline. It's going to take some practice. And I want to pastorally challenge you to actually be more than just light seekers, recognizers, and welcomers. In John's beautiful poem here, we're reminded that if we do recognize and we do welcome the light, we become God's children. And what are children good at? Imitating their parents. We have seen his glory. And now we get to show that glory to others. And when we do, we're not just noticing the light anymore, but we are also bringing the light. Robert Fulgham, the great storyteller, talks about how at the end of every workshop, seminar, conference, there's that moment at the very end, right? Everything's done. Everything's been said. The last words have been spoken. It could be a day long, an hour long, a week long. And the last speaker or the conveyor of the conference stands up and looks at the audience and says, well, are there any final questions? And everybody hopes that no one is going to ask a question. It doesn't matter how great of a seminar it might be. Everyone's tired at this point. They're shuffling to get their things ready. They don't want anyone to do it. And there's always that person, isn't there? That guy, that woman. And you just think, oh, bless your heart. Could you just ask like afterwards, go up and talk privately. We don't need to hear this conversation. Robert Fulgham is always that guy. At the end of every conference, at the end of every workshop, he asks the final question, and the question is always the same. What is the meaning of life? Now, that just sounds annoying, doesn't it? It just sounds like he's messing around. But Fulgham says, I ask because you never know. Someone might have the answer, and I don't want to miss it. <laughs> he tells a story about going to a week-long conference in Crete. And it's on a plot of land there next to a Greek Orthodox monastery where an institution for peace and justice and reconciliation, particularly between Cretes and Germans, has been set up. It's because it overlooks the landing strip where Nazi paratroopers landed to be met by Cretans wielding nothing but farm implementations. The retribution was horrific. Villages were lined up and shot for assaulting Hitler's most important troops. And so it's there on this powerfully symbolic piece of land that this institution for peace and justice and culture has been set up. It's been set up by a man by the name of Alexander Papaderos. Alexander Papaderos is a, is, is a big man, a powerful force, a, a, someone who has done so much in the world around peace and justice, particularly when it comes to Greeks and Cretans and Germans. And Fulgham goes for a week and listens to lecture after lecture and, and is involved in this and is moved and it's powerful and, and, and it's sitting on the very place where on the one part of the hill you can see the burial ground of the, of the Cretans who were killed and right across the bay you can see the burial ground of the Nazi paratroopers. Specifically so that no one will ever forget. So at the end of this week-long powerful seminar workshop conference, 
The last words have been spoken and Alexander Papadero strolls to the front of the room and he looks around the room and he gives the obligatory, are there any final questions? Fulgham says people begin to shuffle. You can hear them putting things away in their briefcases. It looks like no one's going to ask anything, so Fulgham puts up his hand. Dr. Papaderos, what is the meaning of life? Well, you can almost hear the eye rolls in the room, right? You can hear the groans. You can hear some, you know, uh, little laughter, people just trying to be kind. But Fulgham says Papaderos looks him straight in the eye to determine if he's serious. And when he sees he's serious, Papadero says, I will answer your question. He then reaches into his back pocket and he pulls out his billfold. And from his billfold, he pulls out a small round mirror about the size of a quarter. And he tells this story. When I was a small child during the war, we were very poor and we lived in a remote village. One day on the road, I found the broken pieces of a mirror. A German motorcycle had been wrecked in that place. I tried to find all the pieces and put them together, but it was not possible. So I kept only the largest piece, the largest piece this one. And by scratching it on a stone, I made it round. I began to play with it as a toy and became fascinated by the fact that I could reflect light into dark places where the sun would never shine and deep holes and crevices and dark closets. It became a game for me to get light into the most inaccessible places I could find. I kept the little mirror, and as I went about my growing up, I would take it out in idle moments and continue the challenge of the game. As I became a man, I grew to understand that this was not just a child's game, but a metaphor for what I might do with my life. I came to understand that I am not the light or the source of the light, but light is there. And it will only shine in many dark places if I reflect it. I am a fragment of a mirror whose whole design and shape I do not know. Nevertheless, with what I have, I can reflect light into the dark places of this world, into the black places in the hearts of men and women, and change some things for some people. Perhaps others may see and do likewise. This is what I'm about. This is the meaning of my life. Oh, friends, at the beginning of a new year, I pastorally challenge you, don't be dark avengers anymore. Don't just be sin managers. Don't just be looking around waiting like Chicken Little for the sky to fall because the light has come. Come on. The light has come. The question is, will we recognize it? Will we welcome it? Will we go looking for it? And will we reflect it into all places in the world? We now come on this first Sunday of the month to the Lord's Supper. 
the Lord's Supper. Well, this is a wonderful invitation to the light. And I'm going to invite, invite any of my colleagues that are here in the room this morning, if they feel comfortable to come up and kind of line along here the stage so that we might take the Lord's Supper together in solidarity. And maybe that'll help you feel and recognize that, again, you are part of what we're doing here. Friends, the light has come into the very darkness for the sake of the world. And so when we come to this cup and this, this, this bread, we are reminded of what God has done in the light. And we're reminded again what we are called to do with the light. We're not the source of the light, but we can be reflectors of the light. And maybe others might see and do likewise. Likewise.